The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s. Back in the 1800s, the basic principles of the nervous system were slowly being unraveled by people such as Galvani in Italy and Helmholtz in Germany. Toward the end of the 1800s, biologists were approaching an understanding of the details. In particular, Camille Golgi, who believed that the nervous system was a single entity, invented a staining technique that allowed Santiago Ramon y Cajal to prove that the nervous system was actually composed of individual neurons. Together, they won the Nobel Prize in 1906. The British biologist, Sir Charles Sherrington, had already named what Ramon E. Cajal saw, the synapse. Sherrington, too, would win a Nobel Prize for his work on neurons with Edgar Douglas Adrian. And in 1921, the German biologist Otto Loewy completed the picture by discovering acetylcholine and the idea of the neurotransmitter. For his work, Loewy received the Nobel Prize and shared it with Henry Hallett Dale. Interestingly, acetylcholine is a relative of muscarine, the active ingredient in some of those mushrooms that some of our ancient ancestors liked so much. Of course, studies of the physiology of the brain were also coming along. Even in the 1800s, anatomy had reached a point of sophistication that allowed medical artists to make such intricate drawings that even modern surgeons could still benefit from them. But there has always been a limitation involved. It was one thing to carve up a dead brain but quite another to actually see a living brain at work. And from the late 1800s through the 1900s, there were some remarkable efforts made at exploring the brain without removing the brain from its owner. First, Wilhelm Conrad Rotengen invents the X-ray in 1895. Now, the X-ray is a remarkable tool for physicians and researchers. However... It's less useful when it comes to the soft tissues of the brain. It took almost 100 years, but in 1972, Godfrey Hounsfeld added the computer to the X-ray and developed computerized axial tomography, or the CT or CAT scan. The CAT scan sums multiple extras into a far more detailed three-dimensional image of the brain. Now, using a very different approach, Hans Berger developed the first electroencephalogram, or EEG, in 1929. The modern version of the EEG has moving paper and vibrating pens that record the minute electrical coordinated pulses of a large number of neurons on the surface of the cortex. And of course, it was only a matter of time before researchers added the computer to the equation. In 1981, the team of Phelps, Hoffman, and Terpagosian developed the first PET scan. The PET scan 
positron emission tomography, works like this. The doctor injects a radioactive glucose, or sugar water, into the patient's bloodstream. The PET device then detects the relative activity level, that is, the use of the glucose in different areas of the brain. The computer generates an image that allows the researcher to tell which parts of the brain are most active when we perform various mental operations, whether it is looking at something, counting inside of our heads, imagining something, or listening to music. In 1937, Isidore I. Rabi, a professor at Columbia University, noticed that atoms reveal themselves by emitting radio waves after first having been subjected to a powerful magnetic field. He called this nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR. And this technology was soon used by scientists to identify chemical substances in the lab. It would be many years later that a Dr. Raymond Damadian would recognize the potential of NMR for medicine. Now, Damadian is an interesting and controversial person. He was born in New York City in 1936. When he was only eight years old, he was accepted to the Juilliard School of Music. He was awarded a scholarship to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and then went on to receive his medical degree at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine of the Yeshiva University in the Bronx. He actually received his degree in 1960 at the tender age of 24. And from there, he began medical research at Brooklyn's Downstate Medical Center. Investigating tumors in rats, he noted that the NMR signals from cancerous tumors were significantly different from the signal from healthy rats. He hypothesized that the reason was the larger number of water molecules and therefore hydrogen atoms in those cancerous tumors. His findings were published in the journal Science in 1971. Realizing that this was the basis for a non-surgical way to detect cancer, he got the idea for a large-scale NMR device that could be used to record radio waves coming from all of the atoms in the human body. You had only to create a magnetic field that was big enough. So in 1977, he and his students built a temperamental prototype of the modern MRI, or magnetic resonance imaging, which they called the indomitable. He tried it unsuccessfully on himself first, and then on a graduate student named Larry Minkoff. The result was a mere 106 data points, which were first recorded in colored pencils. And these data points describe the tissues of Minkoff's chest. The Indomitable is now in the Smithsonian. Damadian's story continues with his recording of a patent, followed by years of litigation trying to fight off companies like Hitachi and General Electric, who disputed his patent. He has also stirred up controversy among his colleagues by supporting the work of the so-called creation scientists. Now, there have been a number of other scientists who were studying NMR and who were, in fact, heading in the same direction as Damadian. One person in particular with a legitimate claim of co-discovery is Paul Lautenberg. 
He developed the idea of using small NMR gradients to map the body while at SUNY Stony Brook. In 1973, he used his technique on a test tube of water, and then he used it on a clam. His work was published in the journal Nature, and it is his technique that is favored today. Lautenbur and the British MRI researcher Peter Mansfield were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2003. So the MRI works like this. You create a strong magnetic field which runs through the person from head to toe. It causes the spinning hydrogen atoms in the person's body to line up with the magnetic field. Then, you send a radio pulse at a special frequency that causes the hydrogen protons to spin in a different direction. When you turn off the radio pulse, the protons will return to their alignment with the magnetic field and release the extra energy that they took in from the radio pulse. That energy is picked up by the same coil that produced the energy, which is now acting like a three-dimensional antenna. Since different tissues have different relative amounts of hydrogen in them, they each give a different density of energy signal, which the computer organizes into a detailed three-dimensional image. And this image is nearly as detailed as an anatomical photograph. On the more active side, direct electrical stimulation of the brain of a living person became a fine art in the 1900s. Back in 1909, Harvey Cushing mapped the somatosensory cortex. And in 1954, James Olds produced a media sensation by discovering the so-called pleasure center of the hypothalamus. By the end of the century, the specialized areas of the brain were pretty well mapped. Brain surgery also became more effective. In the process of looking for surgical relief for extreme epilepsy, it was discovered that severing the corpus callosum, that connective tissue that joins the left and right hemispheres of the brain, greatly improved the epileptic patient's condition. Roger Sperry was then able to discover the various differences between the left and right hemispheres in some of the most interesting studies in history. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work in 1981. Now, another aspect of the use of electricity and technology is its use in attempting to heal people with mental illness. Although it's still controversial even to this day, the evidence suggests that electroshock therapy, or ECT, which was first used in 1938, can be effective in the care of very depressed patients. Electroshock, or electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, involves sending strong electrical currents through an anesthetized patient's brain. So the patient is unconscious and receives a large dose of muscle relaxers. The electric shock is applied to the brain, and it creates what is very similar to an epileptic seizure. The reason why this was thought to even be a reasonable idea was that it had been noted that patients who had epilepsy were very, very unlikely to have schizophrenia. Perhaps the induction of an epileptic-type condition within the brain might somehow cure the schizophrenia. Well, it did not work for schizophrenia, 
but it has demonstrated effectiveness with depression. When the patient awakes, they cannot seem to recall several hours of time before the procedure, but they also feel much less depressed. However, there is still a side effect of the loss of short-term memory following electroshock therapy. And we're still not sure exactly why it works. Now, a less effective and much more radical technology is the lobotomy. It was first used on human beings by Antonio Igatz Moniz of the University of Lisbon Medical School, who won a Nobel Prize for his work in 1949. The lobotomy was turned into a mass production technique by Walter Freeman, who performed the first lobotomy in the United States in 1936. If you'd like to learn more about lobotomies, I've included a special bonus episode of the Story of Psychology podcast called A Brief History of Lobotomies. In that bonus podcast, I note that the end of lobotomies came as the result of the rise of the pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals, often coming in pill form, were a simple and effective way of dealing with mental illness. Back in the early 1900s, psychopharmacology as a medical science was just beginning. There were drugs like bromide or chlorohydrate, which were used as sedatives. Uh, Phenylbarbital enters the picture around 1912 as the first barbiturate. And in the second half of the 1900s, with the basic mechanisms of the synapse understood, progress was made into the development of psychoactive drugs. In 1949... John Cade, an Australian psychiatrist, found that lithium, a light metal, could lessen the manic aspect of manic depression. In 1952, a French Navy doctor named Henri Labrie came up with a calming medication which included chlorpromazine, which was promoted as the antipsychotic Thorazine a few years later. In 1956, the first MAOI antidepressant called Epronazid, was developed by Hoffman LaRoche Pharmaceutical Company. It was first used in tuberculosis patients, and it did appear to cheer them up a little bit. However, it was banned because of side effects. It was, however, the first in a long series of antidepressants. 1959 brought the discovery of the drug Valium, or diazepam, and Librium the following year, two of the most useful and used psychoactive drugs ever. And in 1974, D.T. Wong at Eli Lilly Laboratories discovered fluoxetine, or Prozac, and its antidepressant effects. Prozac was approved by the FDA in 1987, and this substance and others like it, known as the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, would dramatically change the care of people with depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, social anxiety, and other problems. In the 1990s, some new neuroleptics or antipsychotic drugs, such as clonazepine, were developed, which addressed the problems of schizophrenia more completely than older drugs, and with fewer side effects. So what is the future going to be like in regards to psychopharmacology? Some say that the major breakthroughs are over, and it's just a matter of producing better variations. But that has been said many times before. Biochemistry is still progressing, and every year brings something new. 
The rest of us can only hope that many more and better medications with psychiatric applications will be found. Thank you.